Support comes from Searchlight Pictures presenting the new film, Empire of Light, written and directed by Academy Award winner Sam Mendes, and starring Olivia Coleman, Michael Ward, Toby Jones, and Colin Firth. Set in a cinema palace in an English seaside town, an unlikely friendship sparks a hopeful and poignant journey about love, belonging, and the power of human connection in select theaters, December 9th. Listeners should be aware, there may be spoilers. If you don't stop talking to me, Colin, and if you don't stop bothering me, I have a set of shears at home, and each time you bother me from this day on, I'll take those shears, and I'll take one of my fingers off with them, and I'll give that finger to you until I have no fingers left. Does this make things clearer to you? Not really, no. Starting from now. But shush like, Polly. You know, shush like. Yeah, I'd shush like. Welcome to Editors on Editing, the podcast in collaboration with American Cinema Editors and Pro Video Coalition. I'm Glenn Garland, and I'm joined by Mikkel Nelson. Mikkel has edited such riveting films as Beast of No Nation, A Royal Affair, King's Game, Land, and The Sound of Metal, for which he was nominated for the Eddie and won the BAFTA and Oscar in 2021. Now he's crafted the beautiful and haunting film, Martin McDonough's The Banshees of Ishram. Mikkel, it's a real pleasure to have you. I just love Banshees. It was such a wonderful film, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you about it. Well, thank you for having me again. Absolutely. So this is your first film with Martin McDonough. How did that come about? It started on a very sad note. We have to honor a very amazing editor called John Gregory, who had a really good collaboration and relationship with Martin McDonough. He was supposed to do this film, and sadly, he passed away last year, right before they started production. And obviously, I know of John's work. He was an inspiration to me, especially a lot of his earlier films when I was a film student. The way he worked with character work and the way he found truthness so them asking if I would be interested in taking over, obviously I felt honored. I really loved the script and I've never tried working with a script like this. I've never done these films where you go from comedy to drama, these dark films that he's doing, but I was very intrigued by it. So we had this meeting and we mostly talked about personality and who we are as persons. And he offered me the film and I was very grateful. Martin, being an amazing writer and also coming from theater world, he wrote all the characters for these roles for the actors in mind. So he knew exactly how he wanted this to be. And he was so well prepared when he got into the edit. He had like take by take written down which line he likes from which take. As an editor, it was amazing. <laughs> it's like, absolutely, bring it on. So we were very invested in trying all these things. And it was so joyful and it was so playful as well. And when you say that he would mark down lines he preferred, would you definitely use those particular takes? Or if you disagreed, use your own judgment and then discuss it when he got into the cutting room? No, we would always try it, of course. I mean, there's no way for me to say that it's not working (laughs) without trying it. Martin needs to see the things that he wants to try. And I want to see what he likes as well. Then it's all about the discussion. Is the tonality right? Is it right that he should be high or low? Where's the character? What's the status in the scene? Who's above who? Some of the scenes are almost like a duel, like a Western without words. 
but just with a lot of dialogue in between. So it's almost like they're shooting at each other, which is extremely funny to play around with. And when should you have the pauses, the rhythm between the actors, and also try to keep it as simple as possible. The hope is that you didn't really see any edits. That's the dream, that you just enter this universe and then you get out of it just been somewhere for an hour and 50 minutes in this world. And then you're like, whoa, holy moly, what just happened? That was really touching or moving or sad. And Martin's dream was to make a really beautiful, sad film. And I really like that. Martin's scripts are like a piece of music almost. You read it and you sense that there's a rhythm to it. And then you add the actors and suddenly it finds its own rhythm and life. And little by little, you start finding and molding the simplicity in the story. And also to go from a laugh to a serious tone in one scene, that whole balance of trying to go from dark to light or light to dark. Well, talk to me about dealing with drama versus comedy and how you balance that. And editorially, if there was any shifts or if you just let the actors take you where you needed to go. I mean, you would always have the actors take you and, and see where it goes. And then you start questioning and play around with it and ask, do we need this? What if this is not there? Martin, he's so confident and he knows exactly what he likes. So he's very open to try and play around with things. To be honest, we didn't really play with structure much, which is what you would normally do a lot. But very cleverly, the whole start of having this guy going up to another person and then something just happens and you question it together with your main character. Basically, the conceit is that Colm doesn't want to be Patrick's friend anymore. So you're wondering, it seemed like they had a great relationship the day before. So what happened? And you're wondering whether they did have, in fact, this relationship that Paddock imagines. It's a really clever move from a perspective point of view, because you are with your main character right from the start and you start questioning like what's that about you want to know their history and you want to know what they were like before did he ever shoot anything of the two of them previous the script was completely like this but obviously we had possibilities of opening it up and should it be a little bit more should it be less of these things it was very precise it was interesting having this island, which is almost idyllic, starts off with rainbows and stunning landscape and choral vocals. It's just very simplistic beauty. And then you just see that underneath there's a quiet desperation, a loneliness. It's just interesting to play off of that. True. And we did play with this whole idea that the island is a character. Nature is a character and animals are characters. At a certain point, I had the feeling that what if the animals are the most sane or the only sane? <laughs> and then you have the heart from Chivon that you feel like, oh, luckily there's one sane person on this island, but obviously she has to leave it. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the idea that you have these moments between the dialogues where you have time to look at the beauty of the nature and the animals with a piece of music, almost like fairy tales. And that's also how we work with the music. There's a friendship theme or an island theme or an animal theme. It's a fable that you enter this world and you also exit this world somehow. Talk to me about the music because it did have this fairy tale nature to it. And then you also played a lot of Brahms, which I yes. thought was really interesting. And it gave it this lyrical, almost poetic sadness. 
True. And those music pieces that were brought by Martin, it's the same with the opening song, which is a Bulgarian choir. And he was very confident that this has to open the film. Mm. And he knew this before you started working together. He sent the track right away. And he also gave me a lot of different music. We tried a lot of things, but he was very confident that this shouldn't be an Irish film. It shouldn't sound like what you would normally do with Irish music. It should have a completely different approach in music. And then we had these Brahms pieces. He had like a library of music that he connected with. And I think that's how he works. And that's a gift for us in the edit room, right? Because he could have written some of the, the montages of the scenes with these piece of music in mind. There's a certain place where his beloved Jenny has a very sad scene. He said, I would love to see that piece of music in this area. And I kind of loved working in that way. I think that was a big inspiration for Karabebel when he joined. Because we also played a lot with this Indonesian gamelang music, which makes it kind of odd. Yeah, the bells. Yeah, these things we had in the edit as temp scores, but I think it was a big inspiration for Kata. He created like beautiful themes, very simple themes with the harp and the different instruments. But then he also brought this gamelan thing into it. So it created this oddness, which I really, really liked. It was interesting because I couldn't place it. It didn't seem ethnic necessarily, but it did seem like it was very unusual and something that I couldn't quite place, which I thought was effective. Because this island, they're isolated. They can see Ireland just across the strait, but a world away. I like that it's not just an Irish movie because there is an isolation. And it's almost like this film is a bit of a metaphor for human interaction. They have this civil war going over in Ireland, and it's almost like, why are they fighting? Who knows at this point? And it's almost the same thing with Colum and Paddock, because you don't quite know exactly why they're rowing. There's this echo, which is kind of nice. Which is the beauty of the script, right? It says a lot of different things. It allows you to put all these things in yourself. And Martin is not trying to force anything. He allows the film to speak for itself. And you see it one way, I see it another way. And I love that. I love that you are able to sit and contemplate about themes and thoughts on your own. Absolutely. It's like a piece of poetry. And it's cut very lyrical. I think a lot of that does have to do with these quiet moments and these moments where you do show the landscape and the different parts of the island. I think you're right. That was the dream. It's very unpredictable, the whole story. I don't know if it feels slow or anything, but for me, it also feels fast. It's really difficult to find the rhythm of such a film because it's not easy to lean against other films so much. There's a lot of Westerns that kind of have the same energy or rhythm in it, but then also a lot of Bergman films. But it's interesting because sometimes Bergman films feel very slow to me, and this did not feel slow to me. I think part of that was there were lots of scenes. Even though it is a quiet film, when they're giving dialogue, I like how you speak about a Western because there is almost this duel in the streets feel when they do talk. And then when they stop talking, there's these quiet moments like the dust clearing. It just felt like it was really moving. I learned a lot as well, I have to say. I learned a lot about this whole idea 
idea of balance with the performances, the rhythm, the comedy, the drama, the light, the dark, the musicality, and trying to find this. And little by little, it just gets more and more tight. It was interesting for me to work with on this because even though it's a studio movie, Martin has final cut and he knows what he wants, but he's very open. So we do previews and we did a preview in America and one in England just to see the difference. And also how much do you actually understand of the dialogue? He used an example that you can watch a Scorsese movie like Mean Streets. And we understand American, but there's maybe like five, ten percent that we don't understand because it's slang. And it doesn't matter because it becomes real. And this should almost feel the same. I probably now worked on it for a year and there's probably sequences where I wouldn't be completely 100% sure what it is they're saying. But that's what makes it also authentic and interesting. There are times that I've watched Irish films that I've really enjoyed, but sometimes I have to watch a scene several different times to just have any idea what was being said. And this was very clear. Colin and Brendan, maybe it's because they have worked together. There is history. There just felt like there was this friendship. And I think that that's really interesting because we all know them from in Bruges and to have them now not wanting to talk to each other. It's very clever because you're like, wait, I just love these two together. Why don't they want to be friends? Yeah. Yeah. But they're like amazing actors, all of them. Carrie Condon is doing a phenomenal job as Siobhan. Uh, Dominic is so loving. And then you have Colin and Brendan. I think they're doing <laughs> amazing work in this. Sometimes it's so little they're giving, but you do sense that there's been this friendship. And obviously, if you've seen in Bruges, then you know that there's a really nice collaboration between the two of them. So it's just a really smart move for Martin to have them break up in the first scene. And you're like, <laughs> what on earth is going on? You just get intrigued and you get interested, right? Everyone tells you what is going to happen. And then suddenly it just takes this completely different turn, which you didn't expect at all from Brendan's character. It starts becoming about these questions about legacy and about friendship and about what's enough. And it's a beautiful film from a human aspect. It's very caring. Well, the thing about Colm is that he doesn't want to be mean, but... He does want to be left alone. And there's this scene where the police officer just smashes Haddock in the face. And I love the way that was cut because you weren't expecting it. It sort of came out of nowhere. And then Colum takes him home. No words are exchanged. They're just quiet. So much is being said without anything being said. That's the whole balance of relationship between the two of them. We build up this tension. You don't want him to approach him because you know he doesn't want to be approached. And you have this scene where they're just looking at each other. There's a threat. Well, the threat is I will cut off a finger <laughs> if you talk to me. And you're wondering, is he being serious? Is he feckin' joking? And you just don't know. Absolutely. But the moment before he gets hit by the policeman, that's where you have that duel because they see each other and you really don't know what's going to happen now. Is he going to say anything to him? And then out of the blue, you have that hit, which first of all, it changes everything completely for Porik's character. You see him so vulnerable, you see him so miserable. And then the fact that Khan comes and brings him up, dusts him off, puts him on the wagon. But you also sense how much Porik wants this dialogue and there's no way that can happen. And it's all in silence. But then suddenly he starts showing these small cracks, which are super interesting. And he's playing it so well. 
Brendan, I have to say. It's almost nothing he does, and it's so effective, and it's saying so much. And he becomes very human. You start caring a lot about this character from that moment, because up to that point, you've been like, why is he so mean to him? Well, one of the reasons why I don't feel like the film feels long and it keeps moving is because it is sort of a mystery. You're just peeling the onion. You're really trying to understand the psyche of Colm. What's going yeah. on? Like, Patrick, you know exactly how he feels. He wants to be friends. He wants things to be the same as they were. He doesn't understand why they're not. But Colm, there's been a shift, and you just don't understand. And you get these little insights. Like, when we go into his house the first time, you show the masks and the Victrola. This is a very interesting person who is more worldly than this island. And Patrick, the island is almost all he knows. Yeah, and little by little, you get to understand all of them. You said that you guys would go through and trim and tighten. Was that mostly the beats, or did you guys actually eliminate certain sequences or dialogue from sequences? He wasn't precious. No, 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 no. Martin was very open to try things. And also, you never really know how much setup do you need to understand. Do you need a backstory of the parents? How much do you need to know about when the parents died or how they died? All these things. And little by little, you get a sense less sometimes is more. In a way, it goes for all the characters. And Martin wasn't at all precious about if it's better without the scene or if it's better a shorter scene, then that's what we're going for. But it was always little by little by little by little, you find and you mold the things and you find the film. Then you see how people react with screenings. And then is that too much? Should we have that laugh? Should we stay a little bit more? How much do we actually need? from the characters. He's very open to seeing from a different perspective or try a thing with the scene, but he's also very clear if he likes things or not. And I like that way of working. I really enjoyed working with Martin a lot. It was very focused and I really like that. Tell me what I've done to you. I just don't like you no more. Huh? Banshees is one of the year's best reviewed films. That's what I thought. Shudderingly funny. Ah! It's a stone cold classic. Who told you? It's an island where it gets around. From writer-director Martin McDonough. How are you, fatty? Don't miss one of the very best films of the year. There's two of us in this. No, there isn't. It takes two to tangle. I don't want to tangle. And he danced with your dog. The Banshees of Inisher, rated R. You were talking, as far as being focused, about the fact that you would go 10 days editing, and then you would take four days off, and then you'd go another 10 days you proposed that because you were able to go back to Copenhagen to be with your family. Tell me a little bit about that process. The idea was to do the first pass from my edit place in Copenhagen, and then I would go to London, and it's very close to Copenhagen. But I would go for 10 days and work with Martin, and then I would have four days off, and he would have four days off, so I could be with my family. But interestingly enough, it almost felt like fresh eyes coming back and you could almost do like a full pass on the whole movie within 10 days or have a screening and then you could think a little bit about it. It was better than just a weekend having these four days and Martin is also a person who likes to go for small travel so I think it really suited him well and it kind of also speeded up the whole process of where we were supposed to be in terms of when do you need to be ready for a second or third or fourth assembly. It never felt like we had to hurry at all. We could really test things. We could try things. We could talk about it. We could look at it. 
It was a really nice production to be on, I have to say. And are you planning on doing that schedule moving forward with other films? Only if possible. And also it depends on my family, of course. On my next project, I'm going to bring my family to London. But it really worked out well. I really like that way of working. That sounds cool. You mentioned the animals and there's this one simple shot, but I felt like it spoke volumes where you had this one bird standing next to another bird and it just kind of shoes it away off the screen and then moves back to the center. Yeah. Finding that was really special. Uh, Tell me a little bit about that and some of the other shots of animals. The idea was to use the animals as a metaphor for what's going on, like the one you mentioned. A bird tries to not attack, but to almost like get the other one out of the out of the frame. And I think I, as the audience, start looking at humans and the way we react and treat each other. And then we look at animals and we just see the similarities, but also how cruel we can be. And that specific shot was a small hidden gem that Martin found. And also the two goats looking at you. It's almost the same thing, right? They're like questioning, what on earth is going on with you humans? (laughs) (laughs) These people are crazy. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I definitely felt with Colm's dog, there was like the sense, what are you doing? (laughs) And he grabs the shears Colm might use to cut his fingers and pulls it away. I love that. Yeah. And everyone did such a good job with these animals. I mean, you have to find it for sure. And it was difficult to find. So it feels natural, of course. But this whole idea of seeing everything, the insanity, the war, through these beautiful, innocent animals, it just opened up a whole new world watching the film. Yeah. And he has such a love for Jenny. And you just feel that Jenny just wants to be a person. (laughs) She wants to sleep inside. This is a donkey that he just loves. But you know, Jenny was difficult to find because it's all about the character. And we tried giving Jenny a small bell and it becomes a character. The sound becomes Jenny, but it was so difficult to find the sound of it. This is actually the sound that my assistant Nicola amazingly did. And she did all the foley for it also in the edit room. So then we could play around how much do we actually need it to be present. And if you look at the sound design, it's very sparse. We try to hold back on a lot. It's mostly like the dialogue is very present. And then you let the music breathe, but it's not sound effect heavy at all. Even in the beginning, you mute the sound. You let the Bulgarian choir take over. And it's not until Hadrick knocks on the door that there's some sound. True. And it's very effective to do less of it because you become very aware what you're looking at. And it's very silent almost. But then you have these small sounds. That was Martin's idea. We tried a lot of belts and he was like, that's the one. And then in the mix, the sound people also tried a lot of different ones. And it's like, no, we're going back to the one because we felt it. That's Jenny's sound. And it's just so nice. It was so much fun to play around with these things because that's small things, but it makes a huge impact in the whole film. Sure. I love the personalities. There's a different way that Colm and Patrick talk to each other. And then yes. Siobhan has a totally different energy and Hers is explosive. Like when Shaban comes in and talks to Colm, she's so angry. She just comes at him with a lot. And then Colm's just talking simply and quietly, and it leaves her speechless. It's difficult because, again, it's about status in the scene. And 
basically she steals the scenes, right? Whenever a scene she's in. So sometimes we even have to tone her a little bit down. She's so good. Yeah, you almost get a sense that Colm would love to have her as a friend because she's so interesting and so fascinating and so well-read. It does ask a lot of questions, and you sense that they're very similar. They understand each other. She's equally smart, and she's very bright, but she's so caring. And also, you have a scene with Dominic in the end where she could have just laughed, but she doesn't. And that's what makes it so much more sad. Speaking of Dominic, there's this scene where they go to steal liquor from the father. And now you've burned this unfortunate image <laughs> in my subconscious of his father sitting there in the chair, nude. I mean, that's dark comedy, right? That's Martin. He knows exactly what he's doing. And then you start laughing and it just becomes worse and worse and worse. And suddenly you start like, hey, wait a second. Can you actually laugh off this? And you're like choking yourself in the laugh. It's funny because a lot of it's just told in this wide shot. It's about trying to find the simplicity in it. Small sounds of the floor when he's walking towards stealing the bottle and these things. And it just becomes absurd. Yeah. I love the confessional scene when Colm, he's, is it a sin to not be friends with Podrick? And he's yeah. like, well, it's not a sin, but it's not very nice either. When I read it, it was so funny. I could not stop laughing because it's so absurd. And Martin knew exactly how he wanted it to be. Then little by little, you build that, but then suddenly you open it up and you just give it a little bit of humanity. It's like waves, right? You want to feel the characters, but then you also want to go into this absurd comedy. But then in the middle of it, it just becomes emotional for the characters. And then it ends on a high note. It's like you, you can never predict what's going to happen in the film. No, because the whole idea is that Podrick has always been a nice guy. And that's part of the thing that Colm can't accept anymore is that he's just too nice. But he pushes him to find this rage in his heart. He starts changing his personality in order to possibly keep this friendship, which is interesting. But that's what I really like about Martin's script is that everything is believable. Everything in the script makes sense in an absurd way, right? One thing that the film does so well and that you guys did so well with the edit is the conceit of cutting off your fingers could be very melodramatic, but it doesn't feel melodramatic. It feels, of course, this is what Colm has decided. And everybody is horrified by the idea, but mm. it's not melodramatic. No. I mean, you do want the effect of people becoming surprised, of course. But do you then swell in it? It shouldn't feel like a horror at all. It's not so much about seeing blood and fingers and all these things. It's more about why is the character doing what the character is doing and what does it actually do to the character? Part of it is the way that Brendan plays it. He's playing it very matter-of-fact. He's almost relieved. But that's also where you start questioning of his mental health. Yeah. Could it be a depression? Then you start questioning the art form, this whole idea, like Van Gogh cutting off his own ear because he wanted to be a greater painter. Mm. The sacrifices of your art. But it's also kind of absurd, right, that a fiddle player would cut off his fingers. It definitely doesn't help uh, the art form. <laughs> it doesn't help uh, your art. No, which is where Dominic as a character is really interesting because he's almost like a fortune teller. He's raising the question. Do we want to see? It would be interesting to see him without <laughs> one finger, right? Because 
I bet he can still play the fiddle with four fingers. Speaking of predictions, Mrs. McCormick's prediction, one or two people on the island will die before the movie's over. And then this Dermont piece of music, and it's just very beautiful and poetic after that. I mean, that's where it becomes the banshee aspect of it. These uh, folklore stories that you've heard as kids. She does have elements of that. She's kind of playing with the puppet somehow. And Calm says it very clearly that he thinks they're probably just sitting there amused and observing everything. The banshees. Well, is she the banshee? Or, I don't know if Martin feels it, but I would see it as this fortune teller telling us everything. And she's just a really interesting character. It's almost like death from a Bergman movie. It's almost like she's a grim reaper. She doesn't have a sickle, but she does have that hook. Yeah, and she looks amazing. Oh yeah, she looks like somebody out of a Bergman film. Absolutely. Tell me about the religious themes, because there were a lot of iconography of yeah. uh, different statues and crosses and things like that. They're all very religious, right? They go to church, they go to confession, but it's also something about a film that opens where you go through the clouds with a choir and exit the film from above. The gods are looking down on these people and how they interact. Maybe. It definitely has some religious tone to it, but also the greater themes like life and death, and you start questioning things. And then it's up for audience to interpret and felt like the story wanted to be told this way and you know when we edit that's what happens the actors have this energy and the dp has that energy and the script is done in this way and suddenly the film just gets its own rhythm and language and it's exactly the same as you say when it comes very melancholy when miss mccormick says that a death shall come to initiation before the month is out like maybe even two deaths then you have Horik hiding behind the rocks and talking to her. <laughs> but then afterwards, you have this music piece where... where the Dermond. Yeah, it, and it becomes very melancholy and sad, the way everyone is just getting further and further away from each other and Khan just lying there in, in his bed alone. And then him sitting with Dominic talking about the sadness of losing a friend and why is this happening and how did it come so far? Well, that was something that I thought was interesting, is you want to feel Patrick's desperation and loneliness, but you also don't want to slow down the film. No. And it felt like you guys created that perfect balance. Well, I'm glad you say it's a perfect balance, because we did work with the balance, for sure. And that whole section, in that specific place, we did shuffle a little bit around and take out some scenes for the benefit of the mm. characters and to be a little more precise. Not that it wasn't precise, but it would just say other things. So again, it's less is more sometimes. It's about how to get into a scene and how to get out of the scene. And how much do you bring from one scene to the next one? And do you need to know everything with all the characters? Or, or is it better just to stay on one true emotion and then you go with that? Mm. And you bring that emotion to the next scene. You go from comedy to tragedy. And it's very close somehow. <laughs> mm -hmm. You're laughing in the scene, but the laugh becomes also about something true or something very touching or heartfelt in the characters and suddenly dominic finds out that he's just like the rest of them 
and it's very devastating. It's very, it's very sad. Yeah. I love when Patrick, after he's spoken to Colm, goes back to the pub. He's convinced that they're going to have drinks. And the bartender's like, are you feckin' joking? Because he's just like, you talked to him? Why did you talk to him? And you've just got him sitting there at the bar with one pint. And then you cut to Colm walking by the window. You have no idea what happened, but you have Colm's dog just barking in the background. And then you go back to Patrick and he's got four pints (laughs) and they're mostly empty. You're wondering what happened and you're pulling that rubber band as far as the tension, what's going to happen. You need this time cut and it's just a very effective way to tell the time cut. It's how Martin wrote it and it just works really well. But it's very simple, right? It's very effective storytelling of what is actually going on. I don't want to talk about what happens, but I love going from him at Patrick's house and then going to that drone shot to reveal Siobhan and Patrick coming back to the house. I thought that that was a really interesting way to put them in the same space. Yeah, that's an amazing shot, but it's also creating tension, right? You just know what's going to happen now. And that's also where it becomes playful, right? The way we work with the film, with the slow motion and how they're approaching each other. What are you going to see and how much are you going to see? Funny enough, that's probably where we had the biggest challenge story-wise because there's the whole idea in the end of the scene about Jenny. But then there's a lot of things going in between, like the whole Siobhan leaving. Yeah. The idea was that if you start the scene when Siobhan is packing her stuff, because we have worked with Jenny as a character entering the house a lot of times, we have a small sound of the bell and you start the scene with her looking at them from the door. And then she's just backing out. And without it, it doesn't work at all, that whole sequence. But with that small edit, it tells you that she's present, she's there, and you completely buy it. And we played a lot around how we're going to tell that story because you're so invested in this whole calm Siobhan story. Yeah, Siobhan is really breaking down in that scene. And then it's just so beautiful when Siobhan gets on the sailboat. And I love the fact that he put her in yellow so that she really stands out and she's sort of like this flower leaving the island. Patrick up on the cliffs, waving. It's beautiful and it's sad and it's emotional. Well, I'm glad because that's what we tried to make it. But working with a film like this, how fast you can go from something completely absurd to tragic to very dramatic to then very emotional and sad and then you bring it back. And it's just playing with emotions all the time, up and down, back and forth, but never losing your characters, I hope. Were you guys taking out some of the comedy because you needed to calibrate it to help with the emotion? It was always for the sake of the characters. Mm. Character, character, character. And that was like the whole purpose, to bring these great performances to life and then to make them as human as possible. Obviously, I knew from how I reacted to the script that you're laughing so much, but also that it becomes very tender and very emotional and very touching. And obviously, Mm. of course, we took out elements of fun or if it would color the scenes too much, but we would always go with whatever is in service of the character. Mm -hmm. There's a sequence towards the end where Siobhan is writing a letter and there's voiceover. Was that voiceover in the script? The voiceover was in the script, absolutely. And then there was more about how to pace and place the voiceover. 
I really like the voiceover they used in Badlands. Mm. And I think it goes for Martin as well. And I know that it was something that they invented or found in the material. But it's about how to play with the images and how to place it over that amount of time. It's almost like a ballet. Uh, and that goes for both Chiron's letter and definitely also for Porik's letter. I would say Porik's letter is a little more sad and funny because it's funny to see a house burning on a line like that, but also how to end the scene with this hopelessness. I love how you're playing it as he's gathering the materials to start a fire and the Brahms starting again yes. when he's pouring the oil on the doorway and the windows and yes. things like that. And I just thought that the editing was terrific because you're jumping through time. No, for sure. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that whole sequence. So for very, very long, we had a completely different track and we didn't have a track, but somehow it came to us that we should bring the emotion from why you're burning down the house and making that direct line between Jenny and why he's doing what he's doing just brings that sadness and the emotions into it again. And then you can play with time and how much you need to see him putting fire out around the house. And it's almost edited to the music, right? It feels like a music piece and it ends abruptly in the end with the sound of the bell. But we tried a lot of things and it didn't work and it didn't work and it didn't work. And then by playing and, and trying and playing and, and, and trying different things, Suddenly, it's that simplicity again that you bring that emotion from one scene to this scene and then suddenly it just works. Or that's how we felt it, at least. Yeah, it worked beautifully. It's a lot of different elements, right? There's a voiceover you need to react to and listen to, but there's also a lot of storytelling from Porik, what he's doing. And Siobhan's letter is the key for us to understand how it works with Porik's letter. And it creates suspense because she's almost trying to talk him out of doing what he's doing. Yeah. It's almost like from afar, she's like, you don't need to do this. Go. And yeah. he's telling her, no, everything's fine. <laughs> I'm good. But that's the thing. And lying to her, right? Because yeah, he and doesn't lying. want to tell her the truth, which is even more sad. I saw that you dedicated the film to John Gregory. I saw that Martin did that, and I thought yes. that that was beautiful. Tell me a little bit more about putting that dedication at the end. I think that's very emotional. It's the right thing to do. So I didn't know John. I only knew of him, and I've heard a lot of really, really nice and good things. He was very beloved. But I always thought of him in the room and how he would mm. play with the characters and work with us. And to be honest, I really tried to do my best to honor him. I felt that there was a special connection between Martin and him for sure, but also Nicola, my assistant. She had worked with John and she helped me on this film and everyone was just so nice to bring me in and inviting me into this room. And somehow I really hope that the film is how he wanted it to be. He was an amazing editor and we should honor him for sure. And it's a beautiful way to honor him. Yes. If we haven't spoken about it already, what was your most difficult challenges with this particular film? It's interesting how someone allow you to sit with their material and I get to put it together on my own mm. and do it one way and tonality, it's maybe completely off from what it's supposed to be. 
But I was very honest with Martin. So showing him the first assembly was probably the most difficult thing because I have no idea what he was used to. Mm. And I have no idea how John used to work and how he sure. would normally show an assembly or if he saw scenes or anything. Were so you sending stuff to Martin while he was shooting? Not at all. I showed him the full assembly. But Nicola would do assemblies of some of the scenes for them on the shoot. But I never really looked at those. I started from scratch just on myself. So I could just focus on trying to build a first assembly. And how was that when you showed Martin your first assembly? But that's the thing, because that was also like only the second time we met. We only had like one dinner. <laughs> wow. I mean, I was nervous, of course, because I know that it's first assembly. There'll be absolutely no character. There's no emotions. There's no all these things. These are things that we have to find. It's mostly the structure is the story there. And then I tried some music. Obviously, that wasn't in the direction that Martin wanted it, but at least we tried it and we saw what that did to a scene. And I wrote him an email like a day or two before saying that I really hope that he doesn't get depressed because <laughs> I don't know how he normally sees it. Sure. And he's like, I just look forward to see it. And luckily, he was very pleased. We actually just watched the whole film and then we just started working, starting, okay, that's a good start. Let's go. And from there on, it was just really enjoyable. It was a really good collaboration. It was very focused. I also felt seen and heard, That's huge. which is sometimes rare, because it also could be completely different. So uh, I'm very grateful that Martin invited me in. Well, I loved the movie. I loved what uh, you and Martin created, and it was such a pleasure speaking with you today. Well, thank you, Glenn, so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We really appreciate it. Why aren't you talking to Parag no more? That wouldn't be a sin now, would it, Father? No, but it's not very nice either, is it? It's about one boring man leaving another man alone. One boring man, you're all fucking boring! Let's just call it quits. We won't call it quits. We'll call it the start. <laughs>